0: Okay, we are in the central part of this letter to the Philippians, this letter of great joy and it's because of what we're about to read after this first text that uh, we see uh, ineffable joy, joy that never dies, joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. You know, it's interesting, in the New Testament, whenever you see a passage that seems to be uh, catch your attention, um, something like, uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, it's, it's good to say, was that ever anywhere else in Scripture? And the answer is yes. So let's look at it together. Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 18, "'For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, "'He is God, who formed the earth and made it. "'He established it. "'He did not create it empty. "'He formed it to be inhabited. "'I am the Lord, and there is no other. "'I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. "'I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, "'Seek me in vain. "'I, the Lord, speak the truth. "'I declare what is right.' Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carried about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out a right in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 18 months ago, I had a chance to go back to the place that I've gone to in my mind for decades. 37 years ago, I went there, but I was alone. This time, I was joined by my family. We're at dinner about 30 miles north of this little village, and I said to my daughters... Are you ready? And they said, Sure, Dad. We're ready to go to the most beautiful place in the world. They said it mockingly, with derision. I said to them, Turn around. I can prove it to you. And there at dinner, they turned around, and 60 miles away, they saw the highest peak of the Bernese Alps. Within an hour, we were 30 miles south. And in this little V cut, this little village that I've thought about for nearly 40 years, with two rock face cliffs that went up a thousand feet. And on the right side, three waterfalls. And directly in front, the Jungfrau. You know, in the Rockies, you look like this. In the Alps, you look like this. (laughs) But it's not the village of Lauterbrunnen that catches my imagination when I come to this text. It was the next day, about 9,000 feet above that little village on a little outcropping of rock where I sat with a 360 view of the mountain peaks and down this way, the valleys below. But it's not what I saw that day that I'll never forget. It's what I heard. As I sat there, I heard the wind, the sound of the wind. It had a pitch that I've never heard before. And as I listen to the wind, faintly in the distance, I hear faint cowbells, cows thousands of feet below. I sat there for the longest time, I thought I may never get here again. I never was on that precipice before, but I'll never forget it. I can hear the sound of the wind at that pitch and those faint cowbells in the distance. Paul is in a Roman prison. He's actually chained between two imperial guards. And from that vantage point, he in his mind is able to go to the, one of the two or three most majestic places in all of the scripture. And he goes there. And he hears the majesty of Christ. And in the distance, he hears the faint cries of those who are engaged in conflict. You know, according to scholars, most of them say that these words that we just read aren't original with Paul. Paul. Many conservative Orthodox scholars say that these were words that were a part of a hymn that the earliest Christians sang. Others say, no, it was part of a creed that was spoken and repeated before Jesus ascended. He taught them this essential doctrine About himself. And if that's true, that it's a creed or a hymn, that means Paul is remembering it and he's connecting it to the conflict that is endemic in all of us. Remember verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. He's talking there about the tendency of the human being, the human mind. It always moves in the direction of selfish ambition. It's a natural pattern of our mind. It's a basic methodology to accumulate to ourselves ourselves those things that we value so that by having them near us we gain value all those signs of success and significance but paul doesn't stop with the pattern he he goes to the motive he says the motive of the human heart is conceit the word there we talked about this last week means empty glory In other words, what Paul is saying is every person alive has a desire for worth and meaning and significance and we get that from those things that we place in the constellation around us. Maybe our job, maybe our family, maybe our spouse, maybe our bank account, maybe our, our reputation. Empty glory. And what he's saying is that's our condition. That's why we're conflicted, not only be- with others, but with ourselves. Because the more we gain that emptiness, the more empty we become. But he doesn't stop there. He gives a solution. He says to them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's another way to live that eliminates the conflict. There's a way out of your endless quest for personal glory and worth and significance. There's a way that you can cease grasping for your worth. And Paul tells us, have the mind of Christ... Think God's thoughts, to which you say, Oh, that's great. Oh, I get it. Just think like God does. I got it. That should be easy. To which Paul would say, It may not be easy, but it's a, you're able to do it. It doesn't come from striving. It doesn't come from rigorous obedience. It doesn't come from rigorous discipline. It doesn't come from anything you get on your own. This mind of Christ, if you're a Christian, has been given to you. The Holy Spirit has taken residence in you and he brings with that, with himself, the mind of Christ. And what Paul is saying is all you need to do is to lean into Jesus on a regular basis. I need you every hour. What's that mean? I need to lean into you every hour. And as we lean into Him, our thinking begins to change. One of the most cherished texts in all the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord... And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight or direct your path. Now what's the writer talking about? He's talking about faith. Do you know the greatest definition of faith? It's right here. Trust in the Lord... And lean not on your understanding, lean on his understanding. Do you know what it takes to lean? Do you know what it takes to lean? It's to know you're wobbly. It's to know that you're not very sure-footed. It's to know that you can't stand alone. Leaning takes an awareness that you can't do it on your own. I have a friend whose wife has MS. She's 61. She's that far from a wheelchair. He said, whenever she walks with two canes, she always leans left. So whenever he walks, he walks on her left side and just sort of shoulders her straight. That's faith leaning into Jesus. Where do we get the notion that somehow faith is this strong, macho thing? I mean, it's leaning into him. It's not leaning on your own understanding, your own judgments, your own perception. It's leaning into his judgments, his perception, his understanding. And nowhere is that clearer than in this mountain peak of a text. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the place. Look at verse 6 who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Years ago, there was a high school science teacher who was in the congregation I I served previously and he came up to me one day and said, I've got trouble with your sermons. I said, stand in line. (laughs) He said, no, seriously, listen to me. You make it sound like Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He's not God. And when he said it, he's speaking for multitudes of people. You see, in our day, to be a son was different than being a father. I mean, you had a father, you got a son. They're two distinct beings. But not in Hebrew thought. Paul uses a word here, form. though he was in the form of god now that word is normally the word form in greek normally is schema which means outward appearance if you look at two people and they look alike you say they seem to have the same form it's an outward appearance a schema but that's not the word he uses he uses the word morphe morphe means the essence of something so what Paul is saying is though Jesus was the essence, in essence, God. You know, in Paul's day, if you were an emperor or a king and you wanted to send a message and it was printed on parchment, you would seal that in wax. You'd take your ring that was your signet ring. It would have your image on that metal ring and you'd put that ring into the wax and the impression you would leave was an identical representation of your own image. You know what that meant? That meant whoever opened this, this parchment and began to read, it was as if the king or the emperor was standing right in front of you. There was no distinction between the message and the person giving it. That's exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus. He's not like God, he is God. Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Why didn't he try to grasp it? Because he had it in spades. He was God. Listen to what the writer of the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Eternally got, begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. And so after I let go of his shirt, I said, Do you get it? Very God of very God. He has the same attributes, the same qualities. He is in essence God. He is God. That's His place. And that's why this text is so profound. What Paul is saying is this one Jesus Christ, this Christ is God. Second, notice his position. Look at verses 7 and 8. But He emptied Himself... Taking on the morphe, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, think about this. The last possible people on earth to believe that God could become a man was the Jews. They couldn't even speak the name of God, they didn't even write it with all of the vowels. God's name was too holy. God becoming a man, are you kidding me? And then among all of the Jews, there was no Jew who would have had greater problems with that than Paul. A Pharisee of Pharisees, as to the law, blameless. And yet, listen to what Paul says He, Christ, emptied himself and took on the form, the morphe, of a servant. What he's saying is, Christ became, Christ, who was the very essence of God, became the essence of man. He became a servant, a slave. He became one of us. Now remember verse 3. Paul says the motivation of every human heart is conceit, it's grasping after vain glory, empty glory. Our pattern is selfish ambition to accumulate to ourselves those people and those things that make us feel significant. But what does Jesus do? He's got true glory. He totally knows who he is. And yet he opens his grasp and lets it go, he becomes a servant and nobody can ever understand Jesus without knowing this. This is the heart of what theologians call Christology, study of Christ. Who is He? 100% God, 100% man. Do you know why most people don't lean into Jesus? Because they can't humble themselves. They won't empty themselves. They won't lay their deadly doings down and lean into Him. Why? Why won't they? Because they can't. They won't because they can't. They can't. It's impossible for them. Because they have only one mind, and that's the human mind. But what Paul is saying, you Christians, you've got two minds. You have not only the fleshly, the natural mind, you also have the mind of Christ because the Holy Spirit brought that mind to you when you were changed, regenerated. Third, notice the promotion. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Somebody said that repetition is the literary device used to reinforce a truth. And we use repetition all the time. Have you ever had kids? No, 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 no no, 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 no. You know who almost never repeated himself Jesus. You read the Gospels. He hardly, ever, ever repeated himself, but in Luke's gospel he does. Chapter 14, he's talking about going to a wedding feast and where you should sit. And then in chapter 18, he's talking about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. And he says exactly the same thing in both places For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus proves it. Think of Jesus. He was born into a lowly estate. You know, we think of a state as an estate, a lowly condition. I mean, he was born in a a pig trough. He died naked on two cross beams on the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. And every day of his life was an exercise in humbling himself. And you know what Paul's saying to us? He's saying that every day of our lives we have a choice to make. Will I lean into you, Jesus? Will I lean on your understanding? Or will I lean on my own understanding and my own mind? Will I humble myself and lean into you? Or will I exalt myself and lean on my own understanding? Somebody once said, you know, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above the other, and the higher I grew, the more I could get. But now I know the difference. I know the truth. God's gifts are on shelves, one below the other, and the more I stoop, the more I gain, and the more I gain, the more I give away. then fourth, notice the proclamation. Verses 10 and 11. I only have 17 points. No, this is the last one, four. And so at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That about covers it. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now in verse 9, he says, for God has highly exalted him. And the word he uses there is "hooper." UPSO, which means super-exalt. When Jesus emptied himself, dumped all of his deistic privilege, it was an incredible thing. The angels were amazed. But what Paul is saying is when he did that, for 33 years of humility... His Father has super-exalted Him and given Him a name. What kind of name? This name, Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over all. Have you read Colossians? Without Him, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. John says it too. In Him all things hold together. You know, I once asked a doctor, what happens if you'd had zero cholesterol? He said, you'd blow apart. (laughs) I mean, your cells would... Jesus Christ, the Lord, holds all things together. You know that word... Meaning super exalt is only used one time in the New Testament, right here. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, whenever he illustrated, always used one illustration for a particular text. He never used the same illustration with another text. Why did he do it? That's hard. I do it all the time. Why did he do it? Because he wanted the people, if they remembered the illustration, to remember the text. There's only one time this word super exalt is used, and it's only used once, and it's right here. And who does it apply to? Jesus Christ. When God super exalts His Son, He gives Him a name above every name, the name Lord. Now think of what people call Jesus. Carpenter, friend of prostitutes, drunk, blasphemer, illegitimate why did they call him that because he threatened their quest for glory they wanted significance they wanted worth they wanted to be somebody and he stood in their way but Jesus was completely opposite he was somebody Who became nobody. We want to be rich. He became poor. We want a reputation. He had no reputation. We want to safeguard our rights. Jesus gave up his rights. We want to be free. Jesus gave up his freedom to become a slave. You see, everything our natural mind says is up is really down. And everything our natural mind said is down is really up. Everything our natural mind tells us is the way to significance. The mind of Christ says, no, it isn't. In fact, every way you go according to your natural fleshly mind, that is enslaving you and it's a dead end. Our natural mind says everything you lose is lost. The mind of Christ says everything you lose is gained. You see this? Down is up. Up is down. And the more you go down, the more he lifts you up. And he proves that you are his. The more you know he loves you, the more you know he loves you because of who he is and not who you are, the more you're able to love others without expecting anything in return. Most of the time we say to somebody, I love you, it means you do something for me. Boy, it's great to be able to say I love you and I don't need you to do anything for me without wanting anything in return. What Paul is saying is there's only one way out of the conflict, the conflict between you and another person, the conflict between you and you, and that is to lay down your selfish ambition. To lay down your striving at empty vainglory and having the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, every Christian, every one of us, has a decision to make every moment of every day. Will I live today leaning into Him and His mind? Or will I spend my life doing what I've always done, leaning to my own understanding and depending on myself? Will I spend my life grasping for empty glory? Or will I rest in true glory, his glory that he's given to me? You see, one breeds emptiness. The other breeds joy. One breeds contention. The other breeds contentment. Can you guess which one is which? (laughs) Now that's easy. It's having his mind, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. So today, to this week, try it. Lay down your deadly doings. Lean into him. And you will find a joy that is explosive. Amen.